Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, one of the bravest journalists you will ever meet, Dr. Yuri Falshtinsky, who wrote Blowing Up Russia, Terror from Within, a book which alleged that a series of apartment block bombings in Russia in 1999 were false flag attacks engineered by the security services. At the time, the bombings, which killed 307 people, were blamed on Islamist terrorists and were used by Vladimir Putin, who was then Prime Minister, to justify his bloody invasion of Chechnya and portray himself as a war hero. This, in turn, strengthened his grip on power and helped him become President a few months later. Dr. Felshtinsky's book was co-written with former KGB and FSB Colonel Alexander Litvinenko, who was poisoned in London in 2006 in what is widely thought to have been a revenge killing by the Russian state approved by Putin. We can now reveal that the serialisation of blowing up Russia in the independent newspaper Novaya Gazeta was sanctioned by former Russian leader Mikhail Gorbachev. Dr. Felshtinsky shared the story exclusively with Byline Times and I asked him if it was now safe to tell it because Gorbachev had died and there was no longer any risk to him. Well, it was also a question of kind of politeness, I guess. I I would not uh, go public with this story without asking him first for permission or asking Novaya Gazeta uh, where the publication took place for permission. But uh, recently in these years, it was kind of complicated to correspond with uh, people in uh, Russia, and I do not go there since 2000, since uh, the time when Putin became president. So I never thought that this might be interesting or important, but now I guess it's an interesting detail to the story, because uh, Mikhail Gorbachev was a kind of member of editorial board of the newspaper and kind of curator. The irony is that that's why Nova Gazeta probably was safe while Gorbachev was alive, because he would guarantee a security of the newspaper, not of the personnel. There were several journalists from Nova Gazeta who were killed, uh, starting with Anna Politkovskaya, was killed in Moscow, gunned down on uh, 7th of October, which is Putin's birthday, uh, in 2006. But the newspaper, until uh, now, continued to publish uh, newspapers. Uh, I do not really know whether this would continue now uh, after Gorbachev's death. I doubt it, and I would expect the government to shut newspaper down completely and finally. Yes, my understanding is that since the invasion of Ukraine, Nova Gazeta has not been able to publish in Russia, but has been publishing a a European edition. Is that correct? Right. It's also changed its format. And the main problem is that uh, you are not allowed to use certain words. And it's very difficult to describe war in Ukraine when you are not allowed to use the word war. So uh, that's why it's complicated. And also Dmitry Muratov, who is, of course, uh, who was uh, chief editor of uh, Nobel Gazeta for many years and who got a Nobel Prize, by the way, for fighting against tyranny. 
in Russia, uh, he was attacked, physically attacked, and uh, he uh, was kind of forced to leave Russia for security reasons. He went back public now for, for the first time for funerals, of course, of uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, but I really would not be sure that it's safe for him to be in Russia. So it, it is very complicated. And again, the Russian public kind of different. Now they were, these are probably the same people who would read the newspaper, but uh, even the public is very quiet now. There are no protests on the street, no no major protests. I mean, there are some individuals who are brave enough to fight against the regime, but they usually end in jail very quickly now with severe sentences, which was never done before, by the way. So it changed. After 24th of February, many things changed in Russia, or probably we could say everything changed in Russia after 24th of February 22. Take us back to 1999 and this wave of bombings on apartment blocks, not just in Moscow, but in other cities in Russia as well, with Litvinenko, you exposed what you believed was a series of false flag attacks orchestrated by the Russian security services. How did you get onto that story? Actually, I was trying to understand whom Vladimir Putin is. Remember that famous question, who is Mr. Putin? So these were not just foreigners who wanted to know what Mr. Putin is. I was one of those people who would like to understand who Mr. Putin is and how he got into power. And I started to analyze the events of September 99 because they were tragic. This was the first major terrorist act in Russia. This was something like 11th of September for the United States. 300 plus people were killed. It was a major story that in a, in a town of Ryazan, which is not far from Moscow, attempted terrorist act was prevented by a local militia. Two terrorists were arrested, and when they were arrested, they presented FSB IDs from the Moscow central office. And the government became so nervous that this would ruin the entire operation. And the entire operation was, the idea was to have a pretext for, for the second Chechen war to start a war against the Chechen Republic. And this was needed, believe it or not, in case Putin would not be able to win and Yeltsin would be forced to cancel elections or to postpone elections. This, by the way, how this was done in 1996, before the elections of 1996, when the first Chechen war was started. So now they were doing the same with the second Chechen war. And it became clear that after those two FSB operatives were arrested and resigned, the public opinion and press, which was actually free in September of 99 in Russia, would add two plus two together and would understand what's going. So the Second Chechen War, ironically, was started on 23rd of September, the day when those two operatives were arrested and when the terrorist attack was prevented. By the time public realized what was happening, it was already too late, the war already started. So that's why the whole story became very 
interesting and intriguing. And uh, we started to dig deeper and deeper and deeper. And at one point, not in the very beginning, I realized that I need Alexander Litvinenko to be my co-authors because there were some issues and details, some psychological moments which I couldn't understand and which only a person from the FSB would help me to understand. So we agreed to write this book together. And in order to explain, Alexander, what's happening, I flew to Moscow on the 23rd of September 2000 to ask him if he would agree to finish this book together. And uh, he agreed, but for this, he needed to escape from Russia because it would be stupid and unsafe to write this book living in Russia. So we met on 23rd of September. He crossed the border on 1st of October, one week later. And one month later, on 1st of November 2000, he landed in London. And exactly six years later, on 1st of November 2006, he was poisoned. But we finished the book, we published the book, and, you know, we started to collect additional materials. There were a lot of additional materials collected after we kind of finished this book and presented this to public. Alexander Litvinenko and you, having compiled this information, and obviously you then published the book, you have no doubt that the 307 deaths and the hundreds more injuries in these 1999 bombings were all caused by agents of the Russian state seeking to justify subsequent action in Chechnya. I have to tell you that since 1999, 20 plus years passed, after 20 years, there is not a single fact or argument which was presented and would uh, contradict this book. Nothing at all. Indeed, there were more materials coming out, you know, from different people, from different angles, which would support the idea and the conclusions. But what is very interesting that even if you forget about our book, even if you take FSB story, even if you accept the government results, the results of government investigation, even according to them, not a single Chechen was involved in September 99 terrorist acts. Not a single one. Yet the war was declared against the Chechen Republic. So I think these two major facts, the first one, that there are no Chechens involved, in the September 99 events, even if you accept completely FSB conclusions and statements. And the fact that the war was started on 23rd of September, when two FSB officers were arrested in the town of Rizan, I think this by itself a very solid proof that the book is right, that we are right. Of course, the, the Russian state denies that these were false flag attacks organized by agents of the Russian state. But Mikhail Gorbachev was sufficiently persuaded by the evidence then, and this is the new revelation, that the Nova Gazeta should publish a serialization of the book. This was evidence that he wanted out there in the public domain. Just tell me what he said at the time and how he used his influence. 
Well, this was not, of course, me who talked to him. This was editors of Nova Gazeta who gave him this manuscript, and uh, he went through the manuscript, and he just said, go ahead. That's it. It was very short and simple. Uh, prior to this, the, the manuscript itself was given to Yuri Shikachikin, a member of the Russian parliament and a deputy chief editor of Nova Gazeta. We met in Zagreb in Croatia. I gave him his manuscript and, you know, there were very good and interesting conversations. And I gave him the manuscript and he told me, what do you want from me? I said, well, I would like to have special issue published by Nova Gazeta. And he said, this is impossible. We would not do this. And number two, I investigated, the entire newspaper investigated this story for like several months. I'm sure there is nothing new what you could tell us. I mean, and I said, well, look, we are losing time. It's 7 p.m. now. Take the manuscript. Let's meet tomorrow for breakfast. You will tell me what you think. When we met next morning, he said, I was wrong. You are right. I'm promising you special issues. Well, I'm not the one to decide this, but my opinion would be that we have to publish it. And he asked me, what else do you want? He was a member of the Russian parliament in charge of the committee of the security of the state, something like this. He had comparatively high-ranking positions there. And I asked him, I actually would like a parliamentary commission to investigate the events of September of 99, because I think that those who are responsible, you know, should be taken to justice. And he said, well, I will try, but this I cannot promise you because this Russian parliament, it might be complicated. So he was not able to organize this official parliamentary commission. There was a public investigation. This was not a real powerful and strong investigation, uh, honestly saying. But Shikachikin himself, unfortunately, was poisoned sometime later, probably by poison similar to polonium-210. He was poisoned and was dying and died in Russia, so there was no really proper investigation. So Yuri Shukachikin sadly came to grief, but there was another investigator as well, wasn't there? Mikhail Trepashkin. Who was he? Mikhail Trepashkin was former KGB colonel who conducted his own investigation. He was put in prison for this and then exiled, internal in exile. So his investigation was not an official state? No, 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 not at all, not at all. And this was dangerous, what he was doing, and I was nervously waiting for a moment when they would arrest him, and at one point they arrested him. Well, Shikashikin, of course, was the person who physically brought manuscript into the country to Nova Gazeta. And uh, by the way, when he took the manuscript, he said, well, now my goal is to get alive to Moscow and to bring it to the newspaper. He managed this. He was poisoned later. Uh, he died. There were two more people who were members of that unofficial commission, who were also members of the Russian parliament and who were killed. So there were, unfortunately, a lot of bodies related 
to this investigation and to this book. Twinenko happened to be the last one. Uh, These three deaths, uh, Shikachikin and two other members of the Russian parliament, this was before 2006, this was before Litvinenko. And you said that Mikhail Gorbachev sanctioned the serialization of the book in Nova Gazeta. Was Mikhail Gorbachev himself, in light of what later happened, putting his own life at risk, do you think? I'm a historian, and this is one of my specialty. The Russian Secret Service, the Soviet Secret Service, the special services, the relations between the, the Communist Party and state securities. In 1956, there was a kind of agreement reached between the Communist Party and the state security that they do not kill each other anymore. This is actually very interesting because the major losses, which, well, we knew this as KGB, now this is FSB. So the major losses which KGB had was because the Communist Party would execute them from time to time. Now, we are talking about hundreds of high-level officers, you know, colonels, generals, majors. That's how complicated relations between the Communist Party and the state securities were. And state security, of course, was killing party officials from time to time. So there was a real civil war going on between them until 56. After 56, the agreement was made not to execute each other anymore. And believe it or not, I think this agreement is still in power. And this is one of the reasons why Gorbachev was never touched. I do not know if he felt secure or not, because Putin managed to break many agreements which were made before. But I think Putin thought that, well, if I kill Gorbachev today, who knows who decides to kill me tomorrow. So if you start to kill former presidents, or if you start to put them in prison, for example, then this will open, this opens the control box, and this is dangerous. Mikhail Trepashkin said that according to his sources within the FSB, formerly the KGB, that everyone who was involved in the publication of the book, Blowing Up Russia, will be killed. And we know that your co-author, Alexander Litvinenko was, and you say, two other people as well. Were you not at grave risk? Are you not still at grave risk for publishing this book? Yes, I know about this from Tripashkin himself. This was said by a very you know, serious man. I met him in Moscow, who was also colonel of the FSB, former KGB. But what can you do? I mean, honestly, there is nothing what could you do. And if the decision is made to kill you, you are in danger. Saying all this, you know, we, we do what we do. I mean, there are journalists who work in places like Syria and journalists who work now in Ukraine and they in the great risks. I mean, all we do, we just do what we have to do, right? And we have to be honest with ourselves and with the readers and viewers. So now, by the way, uh, we see that this is not about personal safety, because now when you have Putin who is controlling Russia, which is willing to start a major war in Europe, killing dozens, dozens of thousands of people, 
we are all in risk. And when we have the Russian government discussing if they should or should not use nuclear weapons against other countries like Ukraine, Poland, or Lithuania, we are all at risk. So this is beyond the personal safety. You were born in Russia, now live in the United States. So you've had a box seat in terms of the emergence of Vladimir Putin and his rise to power. How do you account for the fact that the West, until very recently, really until February of this year and the invasion of Ukraine, does not appear to have taken his imperial ambitions seriously? Everyone was hoping that he's a rational man who is interested in money and in business. And many people were saying about this or writing articles about this or even books about this, that he's corrupt, playing, uh, you know, for Putin. Because if the person is corrupt, if he's interested in money, then, well, we could buy him. That's what everybody was thinking. He would not do this because it's too profitable for him to have a normal relation with the West, because then he and members of his family and his friends and his circle of close, you know, friends and other members of the Russian government, then they could earn money in Russia and spend them abroad. And that's what was happening. You see, they would earn money in Russia and spend them abroad, educate their children abroad, buying property abroad, getting second citizenship or residency abroad. I mean, this was a perfect life, which actually Putin ruined uh, for everybody, including himself, because unfortunately, this was not about money. Money was a tool, a very useful tool, until certain time at a certain period. But then again, he said, well, guys, this is not about money. This is about rebuilding an empire. This is about recreating the Soviet Union. This is about dominating the world. And then we will have all money available. And that's what uh, proclaimed uh, several times, starting approximately 2006, Then we saw invasion of Georgia in 2008. Then we saw invasion of Ukraine of 2014. And again, this was a kind of appeasement until 22. We thought that, well, Georgia, who knows where Georgia is? Well, Ukraine is Crimea. Who cares about Crimea? And well, Eastern Ukraine, Donbass, but this is probably a Russian or pro-Russian territory. So this was like with Hitler in 1930s. I mean, we know this is, this is a textbook now, right? So we wait until certain time. And yes, it probably would be smarter to introduce those sanctions in 2008 when he invaded Georgia. Yes, it would be even more smarter to introduce those sanctions in 2014 when he invaded Ukraine. We didn't do this. This is a mistake. It's a major one. I was about to say that the next time we would be smarter, but I doubt this. But enough is enough. And when he started a major war in Europe, concentrating like up to 100,000 
uh, troops along the border. By the way, uh, prior to this, he quietly and slowly invaded Belarus and took control over Belarus, and no one actually noticed this until 24th of February. It's only now we understand that he took control of Belarus as well. And this is a major state in Europe. So that's where the problem is with Putin, that he's not ready to stop. And you've co-authored a new book called Blowing Up Ukraine, The Return of Russian Terror and the Threat of World War Three. How seriously should we take the threat of World War Three? Oh, very seriously. Very seriously. Of course, this was written before we knew some of the results of this six months war. We do have some results now, and we could make some conclusions. And it would be easy, I guess, to make some predictions as well now, because we thought that Ukraine would be taken by Russia a week or a month's time. We thought that Russia has an army which is probably the second in the world. We thought that Russia is very powerful. After six months, we understand that Russia actually doesn't have army anymore. I mean, it has army to destroy Ukraine, it has army to kill people, but it doesn't have army to invade Eastern Europe. And I have to stress that this was the plan. The plan was that Putin would take Ukraine in approximately one month. He is already having Belarus. And then he with united Russian-Ukrainian-Belarusian army, he would invade Eastern Europe. This was the plan. And since NATO actually doesn't have, you know, major conventional army in Europe, the choice would be for NATO to use nuclear weapons. And the hope was, the prediction which Putin had in his head was mm -hmm. that they would not dare to use nuclear weapons. And with conventional army, Putin would take Western Europe, rebuild finally the Soviet Union, rebuild control over the Eastern European states, and return everything to 1991, when the Soviet Union collapsed. Now he understands that he is not able to do this, because he has no army. They announced, by the way, that they will increase army to pre-war level, because they lost probably around 40,000 people in, in Ukraine by killed, wounded, taken prisoners of war, etc. With the army, they would probably start another major advance in September, October, within the next several weeks. It's questionable whether they would succeed, probably not, but Putin still has nuclear weapons. And this is a danger which we are facing, because once he understands that he is not able to win this war through conventional ways, he probably would incline to use nuclear weapons. And the way he might do this is the following. They took control of Belarus, and usually we would expect Putin to announce that Belarus now would be annexed and would become part of the Russian Federation. This was his plan with Ukraine, with Crimea, 
And I think the reason why Russia did not annex officially Belarus is that they want to keep Belarus as an independent state. So if they would make a choice to start a nuclear level confrontation, fire from Belarus, not from the Russian Federation. So the retaliation would be against Belarus, not against the Russian Federation. But since Belarus is sitting deeply inside Europe, it's probably going to be very risky to retaliate with nuclear weapons. So Putin might escalate this conflict unless we stop him in Ukraine. And in order to do this, we need to do two things. One, to supply Ukrainians with more weapons. And two, not to demand from them not to use these weapons against Russia and Belarus. Because so far, these weapons are given on the conditions that they are used only inside Ukrainian territory. And unfortunately, you cannot win the war against Russia if you are not allowed to use these weapons against troops concentrated along the border but outside your territory. Yuri, that's an absolutely fascinating insight, both into the 1999 bombings and Mikhail Gorbachev's role in that and the current conflict in Ukraine. Thank you. That's Yuri Felshtinsky. I'm Adrian Goldberg. You've been listening to the Byline Times podcast, funded by subscriptions to our brilliant monthly newspaper, The Byline Times. Please subscribe if you can. You get full details at bylinetimes.com. We'll be back again soon with another Byline Times podcast. In the meantime, thank you, Yuri. Thanks. And thank you, you, for listening. Cheers now. Bye-bye.